As the choir finds their seats, I want to give you a little bit of a flow of what will come. This morning I will preach the 11th out of 12 messages in an attempt to explicate our motto, which is loved by God, redeemed by Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And then, of course, as you heard in the announcement portion of our service, Dr. Scott Christmas will be preaching next Lord's Day as I'm away. And then the following Lord's Day, we will preach the 12th and final message in this mini-series of messages on our motto. And then we'll have, as Pastor Todd mentioned, Dr. Joel Beakey come to not only present a Reformation celebration theme on the family, Puritan style, but he'll also preach on the following Sunday. And then the second Sunday of November, I'll begin a verse-by-verse exposition of First John. And I'm really excited about that, looking forward to that as we dig into a very, very black and white New Testament book on several different themes And I'm excited about doing that, and so that will be the second Sunday of November that will begin our exposition of that great New Testament book. This morning, I want to continue in this series of messages on our motto, and I want to continue this idea of what it means to be empowered by the Spirit. Last time, when I began this section about being empowered by the Spirit, I taught you in brief a a Pauline theology of the Spirit. And we went through several passages in an attempt to at least give you some indication of what Paul means when he talks about the Spirit-controlled or Spirit-directed life, referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit. And I want to continue to talk about these matters of our relationship to the Holy Spirit, just as I have done with regard to our relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ, God's Son. When we talk about our relationship to the Holy Spirit, at least in my mind, there are three things that are uppermost in the mind when it comes to what the Spirit does in and through us. When I think about my own relationship to the Holy Spirit, one of the things that comes to my mind most importantly when I think about this empowering ministry of the Spirit is the concept of how the Spirit empowers me to gain strength and even flourish in the midst of trial and temptation. And I want to talk about that this morning. In addition... When I think about my relationship with the Holy Spirit, I think about the Holy Spirit's empowerment for the privilege of service and ministry. The privilege of service and ministry. And then thirdly, what I want to talk about this morning is how in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, we begin to understand His empowering for meaningful and effective prayer. Meaningful and effective prayer. So this morning, I want to focus on the strength and flourishing to endure trial and temptation. I want to talk about the privilege of ministry and service. And I want to talk about the idea of meaningful and effective prayer. So, trial and temptation service and ministry, and meaningful and effective prayer. All of those are bound up in our relationship with the divine Spirit of God. Now, in order for me to introduce this subject of enduring and even flourishing in trial and temptation, before we get to the Lord Jesus and how he was empowered by the Spirit to endure trial and temptation out of his own life, 
I need to give you some qualifiers because before we go to the gospel accounts that describe Jesus' ministry in the wilderness in trial and temptation and how he endured and even flourished in it, I want you to understand because when we get to those texts, we're going to misunderstand them if we don't understand a couple of other things before we look at them. So, look in your Bibles, first of all, at James chapter 1. I want to set up what I want to talk about with regard to Jesus' own trials and temptations, but I want to qualify it in such a way that you don't misunderstand what the gospel accounts speak of when they speak of Jesus in the wilderness. James chapter 1, and this will even allow us to circle back when we apply the teaching of Jesus or about Jesus even to our own life in trials and temptations. James chapter 1 verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So notice here the context are trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, and of course this is in the context again of trials and testing, so if any of you lacks wisdom, that is for trials or temptation or testing, let him ask God. Let him ask God for wisdom, James is saying, who gives generously to all without reproach or without holding back, and it will be given him. That wisdom from God to understand, to endure, and even to flourish in trials and temptations, that wisdom from God will be given generously to you. God won't hold back. He will give it to you. Notice, however, the qualifier of verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James says, you need to understand that if you're in a trial, you're in a test, and you're attempting to thrive in the midst of it, you're attempting to learn the lessons that the Lord wants you to learn, you need to ask wisdom, number one, ask God for wisdom, and number two, you need to ask in faith. Now, what's not readily apparent on the surface of our English Bible is that, interestingly enough, when the Bible in the New Testament gives us that word for trial or that word for temptation, it uses the same Greek word, parasmos, which, depending on the context out of which that trial or temptation comes to us, it could mean one of two very different things. For instance, when that word is used, and it's used of Satan trying to solicit us to do evil, trying to tempt us to have a sinful response, an evil response, then that particular word is normally translated temptation. Satan is attempting to tempt us to sin based upon what he's bringing to us. However, when God brings a trial into our life where he's attempting to solidify our faith, to grow our faith, to substantiate our faith into an ever-growing reality, a strong faith, a vibrant faith, even though the same Greek word is used, parasmos, it is not God attempting to solicit us to do evil. It is rather God endeavoring to test us to see whether or not we're going to grow in the trials of life. And that's why most often when it's translated in its context of referring to God, it is translated trial, not temptation. You see the difference. If God is doing it, then that which is coming to us is clearly a trial and it's for our good. It's designed by God to bring us to a place of having a robust faith. 
when Satan is attempting to ply his trade with his cunning, with his daring audacity, with his own boastful pride, he attempts not to bolster our faith, of course, but to actually bring our faith, if he could, to an abrupt end. And in that case, when that particular word is used, it is telling us that we are being tempted to sin. Now that, my friends, is an incredibly important point to make. Especially as we look at Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And you're going to see that in a moment. This is an incredibly important biblical concept because in James chapter 1, verse 12, listen to these words. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under, what? Trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, or the crown which is life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is, what's the word? Tempted. I am being tempted by whom? God. You see, I've just taught you that if God is involved in the process of bringing someone a trial, it is not a solicitation for them to do evil. It is an opportunity for them to grow through what God is bringing them in their Christian life. And so someone can't come along and say, well, look, I was being tempted and in this temptation, I'm bringing a charge to God because look at what you have brought to me. I had no other choice but to sin. James says, understand the difference between the two. And no one can say, I am being tempted by God when he is tempted. In other words, no one can legitimately say, validly say, when temptation comes, this is coming to me from God. But you can validly say, this is coming to me if it's a temptation because it's coming to me from Satan and he wants me to sin against God. That's the point James is making. Why does he say so? He says, no one can say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts, that is, solicits someone to do evil. He does that to no one. It's a very, very important, even if a fine point, to be made. Because there are a lot of Christians who have bowed to temptation, the solicitation to evil, and have mistakenly thought that it has come to them by God Himself. Now, someone's going to automatically say, but wait a minute, since I'm human, and since I don't always have the capacity to understand exactly who's bringing what they're bringing, how do I know? How do I know whether or not this is coming to me from Satan or from God? Well, think of it this way. It's all a matter of how you respond to it. If you sin in the process of whatever trial you're in, then guess what? You were hoodwinked by Satan and you fell to that temptation and you sinned in the process. Not ever being able to blame God, but you can at that point say, Satan has done this to me again. Usually, of course, in the patterns that we've developed in our Christian life of those things for which we are most temptable. But... If you, in fact, are facing a trial and you respond to it and you're steadfast in it and God, as a result, brings you to a place of the next level of maturity in the Christian life, guess what? You can praise God and say, you were faithful, you brought me through this trial, I responded to the test, and as a result of responding and being steadfast, God, you are faithful, you gave me your spirit, you allowed me to respond to this, I didn't sin in the process, and therefore you can praise God because that's exactly what he's doing, that's exactly what he's all about as he tests us in the Christian life. You say, well, why is that so incredibly important. Well, it's incredibly important because of Hebrews chapter 2. Look at it with me. Just one Bible book over to the left of James. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we'll find out exactly why this is important and exactly why we ought to study the temptations of Jesus 
as over against our own temptations or in comparison to our own temptations. This is very, very important. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting that He, that is Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God the Father is taking Christ through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Call us, fellow believers, brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And then very importantly, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's the children of God, that's believers, We're human beings. We're sharing in flesh and blood. He himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through death, through Christ's death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, Christ helps, but he, Christ, helps the offspring of Abraham. All of us who are Abraham's offspring by faith. Verse 17, therefore, and please note these next words, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now there is our hope. There's our pattern. There's our encouragement. Because if you're a James 1 kind of person, and if you're a Christian, you are a James 1 kind of person, you're going to go through trials. You're going to be tested. And in some cases, when you fall to such trials, you're going to fall into temptation and sin, and you're going to ask the question, can I endure this? Is it possible? How come I always seem to fall to the same kinds of temptations How come it seems as though I can't get a grip on the Christian life? Well, that's where the writer to Hebrews comes along and says, you need to know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself went through, just like you, his brothers, in every respect, the trials of life so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I ask the question, what is it or whom is it that helps Christ when he was tempted? When he went through his earthly ministry, when he had his own life trials to contend with, who was there? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there every step of the way. And this is a wonderful teaching from the Bible for which I believe you can profit greatly, for I have profited greatly. And so now, as a result of that little qualifier, I want you to hear from Charles Spurgeon on the matter because this is so very, very good. And the October renderings that Spurgeon gives in his morning and evening devotions. And if you've not gone through this, you ought to give it a year's try. It's wonderful. This is what he says about Hebrews 2.18. This is how Jesus is going to be a help to you in your trials by the power of the Spirit. Notice what he says, commenting on this very verse, Hebrews 2.18. It is a common thought, and yet it tastes like honey to the weary heart. Jesus was tempted as I am. You have heard that truth many times, but have you grasped it? He was tempted by the very same sins into which we fall. 
Do not separate Jesus from our common humanity. If you are going through a dark room, remember Jesus went through it before you. If you are engaged in a sore fight, remember that Jesus has stood foot to foot with the same enemy. Let us be encouraged. Christ has borne the load before us, and the blood-stained footsteps of the King of glory can be seen along the road that we travel at this hour. There is something sweeter yet. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus never sinned. My soul, it is not necessary for you to sin, for Jesus was a man. And if one man endured these temptations without sin, then in his power, his followers may also flee from sin. Some new believers think that they cannot be tempted without sinning, but they are mistaken. There is no sin in being tempted. Remember what we said about James 1. There is no sin in being tempted, but there is sin in yielding to temptation. Here is comfort for those who are greatly tempted. There is still more to encourage them if they recall that the Lord Jesus, though tempted, gloriously triumphed. And as He overcame, so may His followers also. For Jesus is the representative man for His people. The head is triumphed and the members share in the victory. Fears are unnecessary for Christ is with us and armed for our defense. Our place of safety is the embrace of the Savior. Perhaps we are tempted just now in order to drive us nearer to Him. Blessed be any wind that blows us into the harbor of our Savior's love. Happy wounds that make us seek the beloved physician. Tempted ones, come to your tempted Savior, for He can sympathize with your weaknesses and will comfort every tried and tempted one. Wonderful encouragement. You say, well, when was Jesus tempted? Look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Gain great encouragement, my friends, by the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 4. And you'll know in a moment why we talked about James chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2, because this comes like a bolt of lightning from nowhere. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And don't miss these first words. Then Jesus was led up by whom? The Spirit. Capital S, the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by whom? The devil. Now, isn't that amazing? In one sense, you have both the Holy Spirit testing Jesus, and in another sense, in the same context, and in the same place, and at the same hour, being tempted to sin by Satan in the wilderness. That's what the text says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You say, well, what was the Holy Spirit's purpose? It was to lead Christ into the wilderness to be tested. And what was the plan of Satan? It was to tempt Jesus to sin if he could in the wilderness as a result of all of the things that Satan loves to tempt people with. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came, notice, came as Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And he came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, wouldn't that have been a testing after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights? How many of you would say, after your own fasting, how many of you have fasted, by the way? Several of you. Have you ever had at the end of that fast that desire to eat? Of course. And would that not have been the pinnacle of physical testing that the Lord Jesus would now go through 
And Satan comes along right after that and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Just for the thrill of it? No. So that after this fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus, you can eat. You know that you, if you are the Son of God, have the miraculous powers to produce instantly a loaf of bread which will assuage your hunger and your thirst. But he, Christ, answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm going to follow the word of God. I'm going to submit myself to the word of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their heads they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, take yourself to the pinnacle and throw yourself off, because if you're the Son of God, you will be helped, you will be saved, you will be delivered. What was Jesus' response? Jesus said to him again, it is written, verse 7, You shall not put the Lord your God to the what? To the test. Sounds a lot like James 1. God cannot be tempted. We should not put our Lord God to the test. Don't try to do something for which ultimately the idea is that God Himself will be put in a bind and He must act one way or the other. He must continue the idea of the Son of God through His earthly ministry, but now He's put in a vice because Christ is throwing Himself off the pinnacle of the temple and I must deliver Him. And Jesus says, you're not going to catch me in between the two. I'm not going to put the Lord my God to the test. And verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And of course, the Holy Spirit was so leading, empowering Christ, even through this wilderness experience in the testing, the ultimate testing by Satan to empower him for ministry. And what comes next in Matthew's gospel? The great sermon on the mount. The powerful Christ preaches a powerful message because he's empowered by the Holy Spirit who led him into the wilderness even as Satan was attempting to ply his cunning trade. Now look at Mark chapter 1. What's his comment on the temptation of Jesus? Right after the baptism of Jesus, according to verse 10 of chapter 1, he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, God the Father, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit's ministry of affirmation. And notice what Mark says, the Spirit immediately, and what's the next word? drove him, compelled him to go out into the wilderness. That's a very interesting word. It's the idea of the Spirit forcing Christ, driving him, compelling him, thrusting him into the, the wilderness to be tested. His ministry is affirmed by the Spirit descending like a dove, God the Father cries out, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the next act in Mark's chronology is that Jesus is compelled, thrust out by the Spirit. And He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Which seems to indicate 
that not only when Jesus had finished the 40 days of fasting, but that Satan was continually attempting to tempt him to do evil. And notice also what Mark adds here, and he was with the wild animals. He had to contend with wild animals. That's all we know. We don't know any more than that. We don't know if there were ferocious battles. We don't know exactly what was happening there. But Mark includes it for emphasis, obviously. And after this particular time of testing by Satan was over, and it says, again, the angels were ministering to him. You say, what's the point? The point is that the Holy Spirit, just like in the ministry of Jesus, will thrust us out into trials so that we might respond rightly to them. And Jesus responded. In fact, responded in such a way that again, the very first thing that He's empowered to do right after this temptation in the wilderness experience was to proclaim the gospel of God. That's what verse 15 says. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit compelling Christ to go in the wilderness to be tested and to be approved in that testing so that He can now launch into a public ministry of preaching and teaching the Word of God. That's how it is with us. The Holy Spirit thrusts us out into the area of testing so that when we are tested and approved, James 1, you've got a trial, you've got a test in your life, and when you are steadfast underneath the burden of that trial, God bears you up, and when He does, He then calls you to ministry, to service, to teach, to preach the Word of God, to be effective. And Luke doesn't want to be outdone. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Luke 4, 1. And I love this. This is really giving us a synoptic gospel account of the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit in the context of Jesus' testing. Thrusting by the Holy Spirit of Jesus into the wilderness, led by the Spirit according to Matthew into the wilderness. And Luke 4.1 says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, which certainly seems to indicate that throughout that 40 days he was being tempted, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And again, the temptation narrative. And yet, by the same token, he is led, according to Matthew, he is thrust out, according... To Mark, he is full of the Holy Spirit according to Luke. And notice what verse 16 says. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And what's the next two words? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, that is the Holy Spirit, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is, this is remarkable. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all of them saying that the Holy Spirit is empowering and flooding and controlling Christ's life so that He then would be tested, would respond to that testing, and then would be involved in vibrant ministry, the ministry of preaching, and in here, the ministry of the gospel. And if you read through, He begins to heal a man with an unclean spirit, and He heals many according to verse 38 and following, and He preaches in the synagogues in verse 42 and following, and you have this very clear pattern that the Holy Spirit Spirit empowers a person by taking them through trials. They come out the other side as approved, as tested, as steadfast, as more mature. And then we have effective ministry. 
And so whether you're talking about Christ with obvious differences to ourselves or you're talking about ourselves, we have the opportunity in the Christian life to withstand the trials, to pass the tests, so that we are ready and able for the ministry that God has called us to do. And this is exactly why the Holy Spirit thrusts us into the trials and tests of the Christian life. Not so that we are solicited to do evil. Not so that we are tempted to fall. Not so that we can fall flat on our face and exclaim that we are not the people we ought to be. No, for the purpose of the Holy Spirit taking us and molding us and shaping us and empowering us for ministry. That's that's what the Christian life can do. And that's the example of Jesus Christ. He submitted Himself to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's will. And the Holy Spirit thrust Him out. And He fasted and He prayed and He trusted His Heavenly Father and God was pleased to bless Him. He passed the test. So much so, look in John's Gospel, John chapter 7. Jesus responds to the trials and the tests And he has such a relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of power, that John 7.37 goes like this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, and would Jesus himself, would he have known about thirsting in the wilderness? Yes. Would he have had to rely both physically and spiritually In his thirst, let him come to me and drink. I've passed the test. I can supply what you don't have. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now what does he mean? Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit. The Spirit will usher forth rivers of living water at Christ's behest. In fact, look back at chapter 6. When many of His disciples heard these hard words, John 6, 60, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? See, this this is the test of discipleship. But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Possibly even a a reference to His future ascension. Verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail or no value. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. The Holy Spirit brings spiritual life. The Holy Spirit empowers for ministry. The Holy Spirit gives us rivers of living water. And when we are thirsty, we drink. And when we are thirsty, that means we believe. And when we believe, we then begin to trust And when we trust, we trust that when the trials and tests of life come, it is the Holy Spirit thrusting us into the test so that we might pass it. And yes, at the same time, I grant you that Satan is there to attempt to solicit us to do evil so that we won't trust God, so that we won't avail ourselves of the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there is the battleground of the Christian life. That's the battle. Who are you going to respond to? The Holy Spirit or Satan? When that trial comes in your life, and it may be in your life right now, or if it isn't, guess what? Monday's coming. It's going to come. And when the Holy Spirit thrusts you, leads you, empowers you to pass the test, And when Satan is attempting to draw you away from the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit, what's your response? How are you going to respond? What what are you going to do? 
Well, I'll tell you what you can do. Look at Acts chapter 1. Here's what you can do. This is what happened to the disciples themselves, the apostles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus told them just before His ascension, John baptized with water, John the Baptist, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see, in the Gospel accounts, when the disciples heard about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus talked about rivers of living water and that was a reference to the Holy Spirit, the disciples did not fully grasp nor understand the reality of the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus is saying, I'm just about to be ascended to my Father and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And when He does, you will do exploits that you never even envisioned. And then it comes just a few days after that statement, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the beginning, my friends, of the age of the Spirit. You say, well, how did it affect the apostles? Verse 14 of chapter 1, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, these who are speaking with other tongues, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here's this prophecy. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will what? Pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Verse 18. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And, and look at the effects of these things. The effects of these things are obvious. In chapter 3, people were coming to the apostles for healing. Chapter 3, verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go out into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. That's the Holy Spirit. It has come upon the church. It's come upon the apostles so that even as they walk around in their shadow, people are healed. Amazing. One of the apostles with a handkerchief and someone touch, touches the handkerchief and they're healed. That's power, my friends. That's power for ministry and service. It's so amazing. And every time you read the book of Acts, you can read almost invariably in every chapter, it was the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Even Stephen himself in Acts chapter 7 who according to Acts chapter 6 himself was full of the Holy Spirit and he preached this message and it was terribly convicting and the religious leaders didn't want to hear it. And in chapter 7 verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he even had the heart himself of forgiveness. Why? How could he? Because he was full of the Holy Spirit. 
He was empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit was infusing him with grace and mercy even at his own death. This is, this is incredible. And throughout the book of Acts, you, you see this empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit for service and ministry. You say, well, a moment ago, you said, but what about you? Does that mean I'm going to be empowered in that way? That someone's going to be healed when I give them my handkerchief? Not hardly. You give them your handkerchief, they're probably going to check it for cleanliness. Well, I'll tell you what it's going to do. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. We may be in these post-apostolic times, but we have the Holy Spirit working admittedly in a different way, but working nonetheless in our lives according to chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians in this way. And it is no less a ministry, no less a service, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of whom? The evil one. Remember the temptation of Jesus? Remember it? Holy Spirit thrusts him out. He's led by the Spirit. He's in the wilderness. He's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan is tempting him. He responds to those tests with trust and confidence in God. And when the apostles themselves, according to the book of Acts, were empowered by the Spirit, even when they were beaten and flogged, even when they were near death, even when Paul was left at the city dump, at the end of the road for dead, he just got up brushed himself off, and went to the next ministry. Why? Because he was empowered by the Spirit for service and ministry. He was empowered to respond to the trials and tests of life, not by succumbing to Satan's wiles, but by responding to God's tests. And God was continuing to use him. In our post-apostolic times, the times in which we live, it's, it's no less similar to us in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith, that's my trust in God, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. How many of the darts? It says all there. You say, not in my arsenal. I don't, I don't seem to be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Read on, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and this, the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Look, you may not be able to heal someone by your handkerchief, but we have no less the power of the Word of the living God. That's what it says. We have the wielding of the sword of the Spirit. And it's not one of those big Roman swords with which they were attempting to, in very, very difficult ways, to flail. The, it's the machaira, it's the, the small dagger where I can pinpoint where I need to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I can use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, for all ministry, for all service, for the responding to trials and tests, I have at my disposal the empowered ministry of the Holy Spirit to take the Word of God into my heart and I can resist all the flaming darts of the evil one so that I'm successful in those tests so that I'm empowered for ministry and service. That's, that's the battle of the Christian life. That's why it's right here in the context of spiritual warfare. And then I can't resist, verse 18, praying at all times, how? In the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You remember I said empowering ministry of the Spirit is for 
the passing of tests and trials. It's for the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit, for service and ministry in the body. And it's also for meaningful and effective prayer. The Spirit is to be prayed to and toward, or at least through, so that we are able to say that we're praying at all times in the will of, or for the sake of, or in the consistency of the Holy Spirit's own will and purpose. And, my friends, if you think about the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life, you ought to be able to think about those three things. Because those three things make up what I consider the bulk of the Christian life. Trials and temptations, service and ministry, and the Word of God and prayer. That gives me meaningful and effective answers to those prayers. I'm praying with and by the Word of God, and as I do so, I'm praying in the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit, in the will of the Spirit, with the purposes of the Spirit, so that my prayers are answered. My supplications make sense. They're answered by the Lord. Spurgeon says this again in the same October time frame that I've been reading this month. He says this, October 7th in the morning, Our Heavenly Father sends us frequent troubles to test our faith. If our faith is worth anything, it will stand the test. Guilt is afraid of fire, but gold is not. The imitation gem dreads being touched by the diamond, but the true jewel fears no test. It is a poor faith that can only trust God when friends are true, the body is healthy, and the business profitable. But it is true faith that rests in the Lord's faithfulness when friends are gone, the body is assailing, is, body is ailing, spirits are depressed, and the light of our Father's faith is, face is hidden. A faith that can say in the deepest trouble, though he slay me, I will hope in him, Job 13, 15, is heaven-born faith. The Lord afflicts his servants to glorify himself, for he is greatly glorified in the graces of his people, which are his own handiwork. When suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, Romans 5, 3, and 4, the Lord is honored by these growing virtues. We would never know the music of the harp if the strings were left untouched, nor enjoy the juice of the grape if it were not trodden in the wine press. I think he probably means grape juice there. Nor discover the sweet perfume of cinnamon if it were not pressed and beaten, nor feel the warmth of fire of the coals through which his children are permitted to pass. Present afflictions tend also to heighten future joy. There must be shade in the picture to bring out the beauty of the light. Could we be so supremely blessed in heaven if we had not known the curse of sin and the sorrow of earth? Will peace not be sweeter after conflict and rest more welcome after labor? Will the recollection of past sufferings not serve to enhance the bliss of the glorified? There are many other comfortable answers to the question with which we opened our brief meditation. Let us think upon it all day long. Yes, this is, this is how we ought to pray. In fact, you remember Jude's little epistle and he says in Jude 20, pray in the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered... What does that mean? Pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. It means to pray in the realm of where the Spirit operates. And what realm is that? His Word, the author of the Word of God. Pray in consistency with His will. Pray with the alignment of His purposes. Pray so that the Holy Spirit would be pleased with your prayers. And the only way to do that is to pray in His Spirit. To pray as though the Holy Spirit knows the will and purpose for your life and mine and that we're praying in consistency with that. It's not mystical. It's not, as some say, pray in the Holy Spirit and that 
They give some kind of mystical definition to that, some kind of mystical idea. Guess what, folks? There's no mysticism to that at all. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying in consistency with who the Spirit is revealed to us to be, and He is revealed to us in His Word. And we know Him, and we are in relationship to Him when we know His Word. He inspired the Word. That's how we know Him. That's, why he, that's how we live with Him and for Him. That's what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. And your prayers are going to be meaningful and your prayers are going to be effective if you pray in consonant with the Holy Spirit of God who inspired His own Word to teach us and to grow us in the Christian life. You want to know about trial and temptation? You better pray in consistency with the Holy Spirit. What His will is. If He thrusts us out to endure test and trial and we are able to pass the test, then we're strengthened, we grow, we mature. And when we mature and grow, we are able with the Holy Spirit's empowering work to do ministry exploits. We have service in the body. We can evangelize with power and boldness just like the apostles did of old. And we have then the opportunity to pray. And when we pray according to the sword of the Spirit, we have the Word of God. We can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And when we do that, we're able to then supplicate for the saints. We're able to pray for them in the Spirit's power. And when we do that, we have meaningful and effective prayers. I tell you, maybe even in my own life, maybe I have, like the church, underemphasized the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we've undervalued the Holy Spirit altogether. This is our conclusion, and since I can't say anything better than Spurgeon, I'll let him do it. The act of prayer teaches us our unworthiness which is a very salutary lesson for proud people like us. If God gave us favors without constraining us to pray for them, we would never know how poor we are. But a true prayer is an inventory, inventory of wants, a catalog of necessities, a revelation of hidden poverty. While prayer is an application to divine wealth, it is also a confession of human emptiness. You see what he's saying? is we ought to pray in concert with the ministry of the Holy Spirit because we're so proud and because we have so many wants and so many necessities and so much poverty. He says this is where prayer comes in because while it adores God, it puts the creature where it should be, in the dust. Prayer is in itself, apart from the answer it brings, a great benefit to the Christian. As the runner gains strength for the race by daily exercise, so for the great race of life, we acquire energy by the holy exercise of prayer. Prayer thins the feathers of God's young eaglets so that they can learn to soar above the clouds. Prayer equips human weakness with divine strength, turns human folly into heavenly wisdom, and gives the peace of God to troubled souls. We do not know what prayer cannot do. We thank you, great God, for the mercy seat, a wonderful evidence of your marvelous loving kindness. Help us use it properly throughout this day. This is, this is the Holy Spirit's church because the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. And Jesus Christ gives glory and honor to God the Father whose mission in eternity past, was for Christ to die for the church. And so that the Holy Spirit, after Christ's ascension to the Father, would invade the church, empower the church, love the church, so that we as individual Christians could learn how to pass the tests of the Christian life so as to be able to minister in the body effectively and with power so that ultimately even in our prayers in accordance with the sword of the Spirit, we would be able to be empowered through our prayers to have meaningful and effective ministry on behalf of each other. What a ministry of the Spirit of God to us. If you thought about these things, oh, I pray that you do. Let's bow together. Father, forgive me for having so lightly understood 
the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how I want to understand and to know and to experience the fullness of His empowering ministry. Lord, how I want to be able to be thrust out by Him into trial and test so that I might be able to endure and to be steadfast and to pass that test in such a way that I am ready for ministry and service to the body and beyond. And Lord, I pray that I would at all times be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one throughout the whole, the bulk of my Christian life because I'm able to pray in the Spirit using the sword of the Spirit so that we would see revealed to us the will of the Spirit and His purposes for our individual lives and for our church. We thank You, Holy Spirit, for glorifying Christ and being His means to dip us into His body, the body of Christ, so that we might be all that He would want us to be. And thank You that You are glorifying Christ through Your ministry, which is what we must do to glorify Christ in our ministry, who Himself is glorifying the Father for the very plan that Christ has accomplished. May we love You Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray, amen.